my privilege to be able to say, uh, to direct your attention to the words that are found in Daniel 12. Um, We'll be looking specifically at verses 5 through 13, but I'll read. So Daniel 12. This, of course, parallels that last verse that we sung. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who's found and written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Then I, Daniel, looked and behold, two others were standing one on this bank of the river and the other on that bank of the river. And one said to the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be until the end of these wonders? And I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times and half a time. And as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. As for me, I heard, but could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? He said, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end of time. Many will be purged, purified and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly and none of the wicked will understand. But those who have insight will understand from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up. There will be one thousand two hundred and ninety days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the one thousand three hundred and thirty five days. But as for you, go your way to the end, then you will enter into rest and rise again. Again, for your allotted portion at the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, even as Daniel sought insight to understand what you've revealed here, we also ask for insight and understanding. Spirit, that you would work in power, not only to help us understand what this means regarding things yet to come, but also, Lord, for how it might apply even now. Pray that you'd give insight into who you are, your character, that you would encourage those who are disheartened, that you'd strengthen the weak, that you would chastise those who are caught up in sin, and that you would refresh those souls who are just hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Work in power through your word, because we know it is by your word that we have life. Give me clarity as I seek to make your word understandable. We ask these things in Christ's name. 
Amen. Uh, this, we just finished uh, just an hour ago the fourth of class for our membership. Those who were interested in pursuing membership it was a four-part class. And the, lo- the large portion of the day was actually just dedicated to answering questions. Um, and some of the questions um, that, uh, that, that people often bring up regard the end times and eschatology. This, there was a bunch of questions asked this week in the community group that, that we had about the end times. And I think it's because there's just a lot of questions people have for various reasons. Part of this is because there's so much confusion over this area of theology because people have taught a lot of different things and people have very strong opinions and assumptions. Part of this is just because people are curious. They want to know what's what's the future going to be like. Another reason is because things are just such a mess in the world right now. People are naturally going to ask, well, are we really close? Is now the time? Are we going to see it even in our generation? These things actually come to pass. But I think the main reason people have questions about the end times is because the Bible just doesn't say as much as we'd like. It gives us enough information really to make us curious and to wonder. And it's not because it's confusing. It's, I think, again, it just doesn't sell us as much as we wish it would. Because it's primarily written towards those who will experience these events when they happen. And so for us who have yet to see them, we're left to, to speculate a lot as to how these things will shake down. But we shouldn't lose heart because we have so many questions about the end times. Because Daniel, who received this uh, revelation, he too had questions. In fact, you might have noticed um, that in verse 6, an angel, one who's dressed... Uh, on, on the side of the river, asked the man in linen, also has a question about the end of these wonders. So the angels have questions. The prophets have questions. They eagerly search the scriptures to understand the things that have been revealed to them. We see in First Peter chapter 1. And so questions abound. We're not alone. But um, it's helpful to recognize it's actually these questions that drive the chapter along. Daniel's question, of course, that comes up in verse 8 as he asks about the outcome of the events and then the angel's question in verse 6. And those really pertain, this is how we divide, I think, this chapter. Uh, Last week, uh, you noticed that uh, we looked at the three major events that would take place, the arise of Michael, which, which, and his casting out of Satan from heaven, which would lead to the great tribulation, which is then followed by the resurrection from the dead. And then verses 5 through 7 follow with, with an inquiry about the timing of these events. And then this is followed in verses 8 through 13 with Daniel asking about the end or the result or the outcome of the tribulation. So let's look at the length of the tribulation. This is the first question that gets asked. But before it's asked, Daniel notes that there are two angels that are standing on each bank of the river. 
And then in the, above the waters of the river is the man in linen. This is the angel of the Lord who has been revealing the, this revelation to Daniel. You recall this is the angel of the Lord comes to Daniel because of Daniel's mourning and his grieving over the state of Israel. And in chapters uh, 10, 11, and 12, the angel of the Lord reveals to Daniel his plan for, the, for Israel from Daniel's time up until the destruction of the Antichrist. So uh, there's two angels here that, that show up. And, and most likely the reason that these two angels are here is to verify or validate the truthfulness of what the angel of the Lord is saying. Not that we'd be tempted to doubt what the angel would say, but to confirm all the more its truthfulness. Because, as you know, in the Old Testament, uh, a testimony was only to be received if two or three witnesses could validate what they saw. Notice also that the angel of the Lord in verse 7 lifts both of his hands and swears. Typically, what would happen in the Old Testament if somebody wanted to swear, they'd lift a single hand. Just like we might, um, in an inauguration or in court testimony, put one hand on the Bible and lift the other hand in the air and promise that what we're saying is true and that we're, we truly are making the commitment that we're making. Well, the angel of the Lord is doing the same thing, but it's all the more emphatic because both hands are in the air. Moreover, notice who he swears by. The God of heaven. Right? You can't. You can't appeal to a greater authority, a more trustworthy authority. So you have three elements, three elements that emphasize the absolute accuracy of the answer that will be received to this question. Recall also that Yahweh in Deuteronomy 32:40, when he foreshadowed this coming tribulation, said, For I lift my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. So this event that was told to Moses, this is now being is the same event that was that is being revealed to Daniel, the tribulation. And the point is. Yahweh, God himself, is the main force behind all the tribulation that will happen upon the earth, in particular to Israel. And the question is asked, how long will these wonders last? The wonders, that word wonders, it, it, it refers to a miraculous event, something that's clearly not natural or as a result of natural consequences, divine intervention, we might say. These are things clearly wrought by God. And note also that, that, that this question occurs by a river. The presence of the river there is really conspicuous. You got an angel standing inside. You have an angel, the angel of the Lord hovering above the waters. Uh, the word river is mentioned three times, which gives it emphasis. It's, why is Daniel wanting to draw our attention to the presence of this river? Moreover, and another thing that's very conspicuous is the word that's used for river. This is not the normal word used for river. Every time this word is used in the Bible, 
it, is, it always has one reference. And it's, that's when it's speaking about the Nile. So this is the word that's actually used for the Nile. So obviously it comes up a lot in the Pentateuch. It's never used in any other place for any other river. So why would Daniel use the word that is commonly referred to, just associated with the Nile, for this river in Babylon? Well, as you know, the Nile was the main artery in Egypt, that land where Israel was enslaved for 400 years to Pharaoh and uh, who would oppress them and not let them go when God called them to come worship him in the wilderness. They would not he would not let God's people go. And of course, therefore, the Nile is symbolic of Egypt. And because of Egypt's hardness of heart, its unwillingness to to let God's people go, God struck the Nile and all of Egypt with plagues, horrific plagues, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, God destroyed Egypt and set his people free. And what's going to take place in the tribulation is similar to what happened in Egypt. Wonders will take place, except the plagues of the tribulation are going to be much worse than those that were poured out on Egypt. And moreover, another thing that's worthy of us recognizing is that the primary recipient of these plagues, the plagues of the tribulation, is Israel itself. It's not Egypt. It's noteworthy that in Revelation 11.8, speaking of the tribulation, God refers to Jerusalem this way. The great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. His point in saying this is that Jerusalem, Israel, has become like those cities that were worthy of such judgment. Israel is the new Egypt that will receive even worse plagues than than those plagues that were sent upon the nation that held them in bondage. The reason it will receive worse judgment is because Israel has will not want to be freed from its own captivity. The, the enslavement of Israel to their own sin is much worse. It's stronger than even their enslavement to Pharaoh. It's going it's going to take even worse tribulation to set Israel free from its own bondage than it took to set Israel free from Pharaoh. That's the point. And this is made explicit in verse 7, that the purpose of the tribulation is to finish the shattering, the power of the holy people. And so it's helpful for us to recognize that the primary purpose of the tribulation, these three last three and a half years, isn't so much for God to pour out his wrath upon the Gentile unbelieving nations as much as it is to wake Israel up to its need for God, to draw Israel back to himself. That's the primary purpose, because when the shattering of the power of the holy people happens and they look to God, realizing that all these other gods they trusted in were empty, were false, and they finally turn back to him in faith, 
that's when the tribulation will cease. That's when the Lord will return. That's what is the point. Now, if you recall in Deuteronomy 32, God is very explicit saying he will pour out his vengeance upon his adversaries, right? That, that verse that's quoted in, in Romans 12, vengeance is mine, I'll repay. And you'll notice he's speaking to Israel there, but he's also speaking to Israel's opponents. And so it's not just Israel that will receive the wrath of God. It will be other Gentile nations. But the primary focus is Israel to bring them back to God. God's aim is to to restore them. In fact, you could look again at, at Deuteronomy 32, 34 in that passage I just cited. And note this. He says, vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. Incidentally, that's the text uh, Edwards used for sinners in the hands of an angry God, that famous sermon of his. For the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. For the, but then notice what it says. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when, notice one of the things will happen, when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining bond or free. The same idea is repeated here in Daniel 12. So the tribulation will be awful, but we need to recognize that its purpose is very good. The reason it happened is because God is a jealous lover. And, and his love isn't like American sentimentality that... You know, we, we, we think somebody loves us when they give us what we feel entitled to. When they honor us with the honor that we feel entitled to. No, God, God loves with an even more intense love. He will not let his glory be shared with another. He loves us because he wants what's absolutely best for us. And that is to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, just as we were created to. And There is no jealousy like God's jealousy. No human jealousy can even compare to the jealousy of God. Because He will pour out His anger in a way that has never been seen up until this point in time. He will do whatever it takes to bring His people back to Him. Even bring them through tribulation. He disciplines His people in love so that they might look to Him and be saved. And call upon Him in their day of trouble. And the point of all these verses is to clearly communicate to Daniel and to us that God is the one behind all that's taking place. He's sovereign over it. He's directing it. He he is the one that is bringing these tribulations about and He is the one that will bring them to a completion right when He says He will. In fact, that's why the angel emphatically swears that these wonders will only last three and a half years. A time, one, times, two, and half a time, three and a half years. Now, it doesn't say years there. It says it just it refers to just a unit of time. But we know it's years because that's made explicit just a few verses later when the number of days that those units consist of is clarified. 
So after hearing how long this great tribulation will last, Daniel then asks what the result of the tribulation will be. Look at verse 8. As for me, I could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? See, Daniel's confused by the revelation he received. He, he doesn't quite understand. And he wants to understand what, what's going to be the result of, of all this awful tribulation, persecution and distress. What's, what's the end goal going to be? What will happen? And what's strange here is despite the fact that the angel of the Lord has given rather detailed information, especially regarding um, Israel's history in chapter 11 uh, during the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes and, and previous generals, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. He gives all this detailed information and yet he, he just tells Daniel a sliver of information in this verse. He, he answers his question, but it's pretty limited. And instead, what he actually tells Daniel in direct response to his question is, go your way. Daniel says, I don't understand. What's the end? And he says, go your way, Daniel. And, and this is a major emphasis in this chapter because the command is issued twice. Both in response uh, in verse 9 and in verse 13. And the angel's point is that Dan, what Daniel wants to know doesn't pertain to Daniel. Daniel's job isn't actually to understand. It's just to write it down. Daniel, your job, like Moses's, is to, to write down this word so it will be available for people who will be experiencing the tribulation so that they might repent and believe. They might understand why all of these calamities have come upon them by reading Deuteronomy 32 and Daniel 12. You don't need to know the details, Daniel. You just need to be faithful to do what you've been asked to do. But the angel does graciously provide him with some information regarding the result of the tribulation. And that's worthy of our consideration. He's told that many will be purged, purified and refined. But the wicked will act wickedly and none of the wicked will understand. But those who have insight will understand. So the angel reveals to Daniel three things. The wise will be purged, purified, and refined. The wicked will act even more wickedly. And the wise will recognize God's purposes in this tribulation. Now, I want to point out that um, the English Standard Version, the ESV, has really the best translation of this verse. Uh, some of you have been taking Chris's uh, class on uh, biblical interpretation and just recently he was talking about the difference between dynamic equivalence and formal equivalence here the ESV has a formal equivalence which I think is much more helpful than the NAS which has more of a dynamic equivalence because this is what the ESV says compare it to what's on the screen many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined but the wicked shall act wickedly. So the first two words are actually reflexive, something that they do to themselves. And the words that actually are translated are actually the literal rending of the words versus what's given in the NAS. But the point is the same, I think, is that what will happen to believers during the tribulation is that they will 
grow in holiness. Uh, the first two words that are used there to purify themselves, make themselves white, um, refer to uh, repentance from sin, the, 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 the separation from the world, a pursuit of holiness. That's what's being conveyed. As Peter says to Christians in verse Peter one twenty two, they have purified you have purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So having been born again, been having been sanctified, the Christians then purify themselves as they seek to love one another from a pure heart. So they are purified by God and that purification by God leads to greater purification and greater pursuit of holiness in their life. So that's what's being conveyed in the first two words. They'll be, they will purify themselves and make themselves white in demonstrating their genuine repentance. But the third word is something that happens to them. They are refined this is something that happens to them. And this is what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 48, 9. For my name's sake, I defer mine anger. For my, the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that you may not be cut off. In other words, God's not going to give his full vent to his anger because if he did, Israel would be completely eliminated during the tribulation. But then he says in verse 10, behold, I refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake, for my own sake. I do it for how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. Again, referencing his jealous love for them. The prophet Zechariah also speaks to this future refining. In the whole land declares the Lord. Two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say Yahweh is my God. So in Zechariah, it's also referring to this final time of tribulation. It will be a period where it will be clear who the righteous are, who truly believes in God, because they will endure through great affliction and their faith will be made pure and proven. But the wicked will have their hypocrisy exposed as they therefore forsake the Lord and continue in their wicked actions. And this is the idea. God turns up the heat through this period of intense suffering so that the godly would purify themselves. But the ungodly would respond by indulging in increased wickedness. And, and suffering has this effect. Suffering proves what a person really believes. And I don't need to tell you that because you guys have suffered significantly in a variety of different ways. And one of the things that you've experienced is it's proven what you really believe. Do, if you really trust God, suffering exposes what we made of. As, as, as Peter says, 
In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter recognizes God's purpose too. As we go through suffering, it tests our faith. It, it shows if we're real or not. And there is no more precious thing that a Christian wants to know. One of the, one of the most challenging, heart-wrenching um, uh, trials a Christian can go through is wondering if they're saved or not. Am I real? Or is this just something I do because it's what I've been you know, born into this family or because of my culture or my heritage? Am I really born again or is this just habit? The way you know is, how do you respond in trial? Does it cause you to increase in wickedness? Or does it cause you to re- increase in trust and dependence and love for God? Suffering proves that our faith is real, but again, the opposite effect happens on, uh, for those whose faith isn't real. Right? The wicked will act wickedly, it says. And suffering is frequently a, a catalyst for exposing hypocrisy. And it's also something that Satan wants to use to try and draw believers away from their trust in Christ. Just think of the words of Job's wife. Right? When unimaginable pain struck his life, his wife responds by saying, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? Right? Job held fast. His suffering actually proved his faith. Though he was severely tempted. And during the Great Tribulation, the reality of people's faith will be clearly exposed. See, it's it's very easy for us to hide our hypocrisy when things are going our way. To be a fake, it's easy to be a fake Christian in the sunny days. But when the storms come and, and you feel like the earth has been kicked out from underneath you, it's not so easy. It's interesting that Jesus, as he closes the Sermon on the Mount, he makes this warning to those hypocrites um, that not everybody will say to me on that day. uh, Not everybody who says on that day, Lord, Lord, actually knew Christ. And then he follows this up by a warning saying, you know, a tree by its fruits. And then he gives this famous illustration of a man who built his house upon a rock and a man who built his house upon the sand. He closes and says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And this truth will be clear to those 
who have to face extreme trials of the tribulation. They will see, it'll be very evident that they really are believers because they hold fast to their Savior. As it says in verse 10, those who have insight will understand. They will recognize what's going on. They will understand God's purifying us. God's, God is setting us apart. He's making us to be the people we were always called to be. He wants us to be more caring His bride for the wedding. So they will have insight. They will understand because Daniel's revelation along with the rest of the Scriptures will become obvious and true. And and, and they will see the real value in the Scriptures. They will recognize what Moses told Israel as he foretold these events. And in fact, you might recall what Moses' last, very last words were for Israel in Deuteronomy 32. These were his last words. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. The, his, his point is, if you cling to this, you will live. But if you forsake it, if you just think of it as a book or a, a list of rules, a list of obligations in order to just make everybody happy around me, if that's how you look at it, you will be destroyed. But if you cling to it, if you realize this is your life, you will live. And the people during the tribulation who have this understanding, who understand the weight of Jesus' words and Moses' words and Daniel's words, they will thrive. They will be purified and refined. So Daniel's question that he asked the angel of the Lord is somewhat answered. He's just given a, a slice of insight into the result of the tribulation. Namely, there's going to be increased holiness in believers and increased wickedness in unbelievers. But he's also told here specifically how long the tribulation will last. Now, in the previous verse, he was told it would last for three and a half units of time. But the angel of the Lord here informs Daniel that it will be specifically for 1,290 days. Now, this isn't the first time this has come up. Um, you know that this is referring to 360-day years. And if you do the math, it should come out to 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. So where does this extra 30 days come from? Why the extra month? Well, it's interesting in Revelation 12:6, it actually says that the great tribulation will last specifically 1,260 days. So why does Daniel have this extra 30 days? By the way, very literal, very specific timing. I don't think it's being symbolic. He's being very specific. You have three different time periods. So what's the difference? Well, it's, it's not super clear what the, the extension of days is. But one noticeable difference in Revelation 12, it speaks to the time that the remnant will be preserved. And then here in Daniel, it speaks to the length of the tribulation itself. So it's possible that maybe there'll be a 30-day period. Maybe that's when that, those believers will be refined, where they're not going to have that sovereign protection. I don't know. I don't know if that's the point. But that's the difference, maybe, in what's being spoken of. One speaking, speaking to the 
period of protection, one speaking to the length of the tribulation itself. But notice also that in Daniel 12, 12, another 45 days are added in the verse. So what's going to happen in the course of this another 45 days? Again, we're not told. But what's emphasized in this verse is the blessing of those who attain to the 40, the extension of the 45 days. Those who live for another 45 days will receive blessing, which leads most scholars to conclude that after Christ returns, he will then purify the land. There will be that sheep and goats judgment that's spoken of in all of that discourse where Christ separates the sheep and the goats, believers from unbelievers. Believers will be able to enter the land, the millennial kingdom. Unbelievers will have to stay outside the land. Um, so that may be taking place. It's also that it's just going to take that much time to purify the land, to, to clean it, to restore it after all the devastation from the wars. Um, again, the land will not just consist of present day Israel, but basically from uh, northern Egypt all the way to the Euphrates River. So a massive portion of the Middle East is, will be uh, allotted to Israel. And we'll, where the millennial kingdom will exist. So it'll, it, it is probably refers to this time of cleansing and preparation. And then afterwards, after these 45 days, then the full blessings of the millennial kingdom and the Messiah will be experienced. And where people will receive their inheritance. And interestingly, that's what comes up in verse 13. As for you, Daniel, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. Now, there's just a few things that are worthy of our attention in this verse. First of all, the command here is deliberately reflective of the same command that was given to Moses when he finished speaking. Right. Moses finishes Deuteronomy. And right after that, the rest of the, uh, the Israelites are able to go into the kingdom, into the, the land, I should say. And uh, then um, Moses is said, told to, he can't go up into the kingdom because of his sin. And instead he said, he's told to go up the mountain and die. And die on this mountain which you go up to and be gathered to your people. And Daniel is more or less told, told the same thing. Daniel, go like Moses went and die. And when you, and then after you die, you will raise, be raised again. And then you will get your allotted portion. And, and that's actually when Moses will get his portion too. Moses didn't get to experience it the first time, but it'll get it the second time. So like Moses, Daniel is told to go and die as he finishes writing down all the revelation he receives. And that's it. His part is just to write down what he's what's revealed to him. Second, I want you to take note of the way death is described. Enter your rest. Death is merely rest for the believer, and we can't forget that. Christians shouldn't fear death like those who have no hope, as it says in First Thessalonians 4.13. And the older you get, the more you recognize that going to bed early isn't a curse. It's a blessing, especially if all your work has been done for the day. 
and uh, you're exhausted. But for children, children often think it's a curse. You know, that they're being punished for some reason if they're told to go to bed early. And often on Christmas Eve, parents will send their kids to bed early because they want them to get the rest that they need to fully enjoy all the blessings of the day to come. But those kids on Christmas Eve, they might go to bed kicking and screaming, thinking they're going to miss out on something great and wonderful. When the real joy happens the next morning, right? But just because they're sent to bed earlier than their siblings and parents doesn't mean that they're going to miss out on those great joys. No, they're going to they're going to get up with the rest of the family and they're going to be able to open their presents together and the family together all at once will get to enjoy the blessings of Christmas morning. And that's that's exactly how we should think of death as we prepare to enter our rest. We're just going to bed early. And we're and and as surely as you are going to go to bed tonight. And you have confidence that you're going to wake up in the morning and go your way. You can have the same confidence that when it comes for you to die, that you're surely going to wake up too when everybody else wakes up to receive their gifts at the end of the days. And this is emphatic. This is obvious here in Daniel. Thirdly, notice what Daniel's promise that he will receive after he dies. He's told that this is when he's going to receive his inheritance. Now, this is interesting because Daniel's not even in the land. Daniel didn't get an inheritance. He got, he got kicked out. He was probably made a eunuch. Stripped from his family at 16. Lived his whole life in exile. No inheritance for Daniel. But he's going to get an inheritance. He's going to get, I'm sure, a great inheritance. Giving his faithfulness. Now, we're not told exactly what this inheritance is going to be. It could be land in the millennial kingdom. It could be some position of authority. Uh, it could have something tied to the, the glorified, resurrected body. But we're not told just that there's going to be an inheritance. But we're also told that Christians, not just Jews, but that Christians too will receive an inheritance. Because of what Christ did for us. As Paul says in Ephesians, in Him... We have obtained an inheritance. And then a few verses later in Ephesians 1.14, it says that the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives is actually the guarantee that we will get an inheritance in the millennial kingdom. That's the guarantee. So not only are we told that, and it's, I think we should believe it if the Bible says it, but we're guaranteed it with the presence of the Holy Spirit. As Paul says in Romans 8, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Romans 8, 16 and 17. And we're also told that the inheritance we receive is somewhat tied to our faithfulness in this life. For Paul tells the Colossian slaves, whatever you do, work heartily as to the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. So as we slaves 
and he actually is talking to literal slaves there, as they work heartily for the Lord and not for men, not for gain, not for praise, not for promotion, but for the Lord, God will reward them for their faithfulness, for their worship of him. And this truth also seems to be implied in Jesus' parable of the talents. That reward is based upon faithfulness. The Apostle Peter also tells us that this is going to be an everlasting inheritance. In one four, he says, It's an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. So it is going to be something that we will have forever and ever and ever. It will never be destroyed. It can never be taken away from us. And because we will never die, we don't have to bequeath it to our children. We get to keep it forever and ever and ever. It will never be taken away. And so I close with John Newton's words regarding an inheritance. And, and you've heard, you've heard this, this uh, anecdote before. Suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate and his carriage should break down a mile before he got into the city, which obliged him to have to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think him. If we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering about every step of the rest of the way, my carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. What a fool indeed. Let's pray. Father, we don't want to be foolish. And even though our carriage is broken and, and the things that we wanted in this life that we haven't gotten, God, we can let them go. The body they may kill, but your truth abides still. God, help us to be a people that are defined by contentment because our hope is not in this life, but it's completely in the life to come. Help us to fix our hope completely on the grace that is to be given to us when you return. When we receive our inheritance and our glorified bodies and when we we're gathered together as fellow believers to fully enjoy you and to be stripped from every sin and all of its consequences forever and ever. Help us to live as a people that live in light of that future hope. We ask these things in your name. Amen.